Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my terrific privilege this week to welcome to Talk Nation Radio Coleman McCarthy, who is a former Washington Post columnist from 1969 to 1997 and the director of the Center for Teaching Peace in Washington, D.C. He teaches courses on nonviolence at Georgetown Law, Georgetown Undergraduate, American University, the University of Maryland, Bethesda Chevy Chase High School. He's a pacifist, a vegetarian, and the author of several books, including I'd Rather Teach Peace, which I highly recommend. Coleman McCarthy, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, Dave. Glad to be here. Uh, great to have you on. Should have had you on before. Now, uh, this new movie out about the Washington Post printing the Pentagon Papers. Uh, what is what is your view of this story and of the merits and the flaws of the Washington Post? Well, like everybody else, the Post has great virtues and and great flaws. And uh, one of the great virtues was, of course, uh, the Pentagon Papers. That took some daring. And it's a, it's, uh, I've not seen the movie yet, but I know that Meryl Streep is a very fine actress. One of has a great social conscience. And so I'm glad she's in the film. Uh, she portrays Catherine Graham, who was the... Uh, uh, the uh, the publisher of the Post during those Watergate years when uh, the Watergate break-in and then the Pentagon Papers came along, and so I admire her. I admire her greatly for that. Um, and she was, by the way, David. She was, I think, the first woman who ever made the Fortune 500 as a CEO. Um, and so she, uh, the Post did very well. It made a lot of money, and uh, it went on. It went public on the stock market, and it eventually reached, I think, nine hundred ninety-nine dollars a share. And it began way back, back I think, twenty-five, thirty dollars a share. So the Post made an enormous amount of money, which is fine for the investors. But it also has some negatives, and I began to post in 1969 as an editorial writer and a columnist. And then after 10 years, I was just a columnist. I was syndicated, so, and that went to 1997. Uh, the post, uh, one of the flaws was that it, it, it editorially endorsed the Vietnam War. And that was the war built on lies, as we know in your wonderful book, uh, War is a Lie, and, and you have a lot in that book about the, uh, about the Post uh, um, um, went along with, the, uh, with it. Uh, I support Lyndon Johnson, and I'm sure your listeners know there was a big dispute about whether... A U.S. warship was uh, was attacked by the North Korea by the uh, by North Vietnam. Turned out to be false, and uh, but it endorsed the war. And gradually, when Phil Jalen came aboard as the editorial page editor, it moved away from being up in that position. And I admire Phil Jalen greatly for doing that. 
Uh, it occurred again in, in, the, in going to Iraq. It, it endorsed the invasion of Iraq. And the, the, the editorial, they had an editorial that the title of it was Irrefutable. And that was when, uh, when Colin Powell went before, I think in February of 2003, he went before the U.N. Security Council and and made the case out that, yes, Saddam Hussein had these awful weapons. And uh, and the Post—and uh, it was a snow job. And, and the Post bought into it, as, as did most other newspapers around the country. I think the New York Times also did. I think, Coleman McCarthy, you're absolutely right, and it was maybe the most shameful incident in recent decades, but I don't think it stands out as an isolated incident. There have been numerous wars over the years, including through those decades that you were there, small wars, Grenada, Panama, the first Gulf War, in which the Washington Post and Amnesty International pushed this uh, you know, fraudulent claim about taking babies out of incubators. I mean, isn't, isn't the general pattern always uh, to support each new war? Yes, of course, of course. And and oh, uh, 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 the Post, like most newspapers, did not give much space to people like Howard Zinn or I.F. Stone or people who were anti-war. Uh, they, I don't think I never saw a column on any op-ed page by Daniel Berrigan or Phil Berrigan or uh, people like that. So it's an establishment newspaper. And and that's one of the flaws. It has great virtues, as I said. There's a great reporters like Morton Mintz, who was a hero of mine, a great reporter, investigative reporter, and very critical of the Washington Post while he was there. He said the salaries are way too high for the executives, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and there he was. I I. Uh, I had to sue the paper. Uh, it took a lot of guts to sue your own company, but I I had a credible case. It's a complicated case, but I wasn't I wasn't paid what I should have been paid. So the union defended me, and the post eventually settled for a rather large sum. Uh, but it took a lot. It took a lot to sue you. Uh, others had the same uh, case, but they refused to sue. Uh, they were afraid they would be retaliated upon, but I took a chance, and uh, and uh, we didn't. We never. Uh, they settled before going to uh, before going to trial. Yeah. What about? So it happens, and and but I was very happy to be at the post. I loved the paper. I loved its virtues, but as I say, like I have flaws. We all do. And you, you've said that you were able to write exactly what you wanted to write. Is that is that the case? Every well, I never had any difficulty with an editor saying, "Oh, you, oh, you're way too left." And uh, I recall speaking of Catherine Graham. Uh, she had a phone call. She was very, uh, she was very close to Henry Kissinger, and she was very close to Nancy Reagan. And she had a phone call back, I guess, in, I guess in the nineteen eighty-two. I think I, I was asked by the Post book editor to review a book by Nancy Reagan, and I did. 
and it ran in the post, and it was it was a, a review of her book. It was just it was just awful writing. It was cliches, uh, pretending she had a great social interest in the poor, and uh, so I I gave it a good a good a good fair a fair and firm review, and said it was a worthless piece of writing, and it should never have been published. Well, Nancy Reagan called up Catherine Graham and said, who's this awful man you have in your company? <laughs> yeah. So so Mrs. Graham uh, uh, called one of the editors and said, I said, how did this come about? Why did you assign this book to this man who's obviously so far to the left? And it was predictable what he was going to say. Well... The book editor stood up for me and said, "and said no, we chose him because he knew she was writing about a poverty program called Foster Grandparents." Yeah, and and uh, she really, I, I knew about the program because I used to, I used to work for Sarge Shriver before I went to the Post. I was a speechwriter, so I knew about, I knew about the poverty programs. Yeah. And what she wrote was was absolutely, I mean, just just harmless fluff, trying to make herself look good. Was, oh, oh, yes, I care about the poor, while the husband was doing all he could to assault the poor. I I, I wonder, given the given the incredibly mixed record of pros and cons in no, newspapers like the Post and the New York Times, if you think uh, they've changed over the decades and in recent years. Uh, I mean, when I watch, uh, when I look back at that story of the New York Times deciding to print the Pentagon Papers, and I see that in the, the internal discussion, they were worried that if they didn't print them and, and people found out about them, they would never live down the shame. Uh, I, I mean, I think today they would have almost the reverse uh, concerns. Uh, and would be much less likely to print the same thing today uh, as back then, and probably the Washington Post too. Am I, am I right, or are they are these are these constant uh, entities, or have they changed over the years? Well, it's hard to speculate, David. You know, we can go either way on it, uh, but uh, uh, I, I do know that. Uh that the Post is hiring a lot more reporters now, and the Bezos is putting some money into it, and now it's just fine. And and uh, and, and uh, uh, I think the uh, the uh, 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 editorially, uh, you, you could argue the Post is a centrist paper. Yeah. It, 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 uh, like for example, just yesterday they had an editorial about Martin Luther King. And 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 every year they run an editorial about King. It's usually the it's usually they praise the safe, sanitized King. The I have a dream King. Right. I rarely see them ever, uh, ever go after King, the uh, the hostile anti-war King who just denounced this country from its uh, from its militarism. And 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 so you know you know I have a dream isn't that wonderful that's the safe sanitized king it's not the angry king yeah do you do you think that when the Washington Post reports on the CIA it should mention that its owner has a contract with the CIA worth over twice what he paid to buy the Post 
I don't know whether I've seen that reported yet. That, that doesn't make a nice editorial, though. <laughs> well, it is, it, well, it is the fact, and it's not disputed, but uh, just, if you're unaware of it, just theoretically, were that the case, do you think it, it, it's a conflict that ought to be made note of somewhere in the Pope? Well, I know. And I, uh, you're talking about Bezos, right? I'm talking about Bezos and Amazon running computer services, cloud services for the CIA. Uh, for, oh, is that right? Yeah. For contracts yeah. worth, uh, you know, well over uh, twice yeah. what he paid to buy the post. Oh, is, is that right? Yeah. Is yeah. that relevant to mention when the post reports on the CIA? I I would say so. I do I, I do notice whenever they mention Bezos in an article, they always put in parentheses how he's the owner. He's the owner. Right. Uh, 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 that's as far as they go, but I've never seen that at the CIA. You have a good column there yourself. Try it out with the Post, David. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, I, Coleman McCarthy, I, not only do you have a long history with the Washington Post, but you have a long history of teaching peace uh, to high school students and college students and writing books, this wonderful book, I'd Rather Teach Peace, about your experiences. Um, how do you... How do you compare these two careers? <laughs> why Why would you rather teach peace? So what's the difference between between teaching and and journalistic writing? Well, I've interviewed so many of the great peacemakers. I've interviewed Desmond Tutu, uh, Muhammad Yunus from Bangladesh. I interviewed Mother Teresa a couple of times, and uh, and I'm and and Sarge and Eunice Schreiber, who I admire greatly, and and I'd always ask these great the great peacemakers, how do we go about increasing peace and decreasing violence, you know, which ought to be the purpose of our lives if you seek a life of purpose. And the answer is always pretty much the same: you need to go where people are, and 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 where are people? Well, they're in the schools. So I started out, I went to a local public high school near the White House, and the closest school to the White House is also one of the, was one of the poorest schools in America. There had no cafeteria, no gym, no auditorium, no lockers, five blocks from the White House, and, and no president has ever gone there. Much less put their children. Uh, the Obama girls could have gone to that school, but they went to the Sidwell Friends, a very, uh, very fine school, a very fine private school. Very expensive school. Expensive. And uh, so I began, I went to, in 1982, and I started out. The name was, it was a school without walls. They had a lot of internships and, and, and really focused on, on experiential, not theoretical knowledge. Yeah. So then I, I was invited by the by the American University and then University of Maryland and then Georgetown and and I've been at I've been at since 1982. I guess that's 18 that's oh, about 30 or 40 years. I guess. And and I love teaching. It's that I I'm a pacifist and. Uh, it's uh, like every morning I have, I have two classes at Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, 7.45 a.m. and then 8.30. That's the only time that I've ever taken a class. We go through eight years of elementary high school. That's 12 years. And they only get any one class in this topic. We would never put anybody through 12 years with only one one science class or one math class. 
Where'd you go to high school, David? Herndon High School, Herndon, Virginia. Herndon High School. Washington ever... Post subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember uh, your name well. Uh, did you have did you have a peace studies class at at Herndon High? Oh, of course not. No. But you but you had a required math class all through all through twelve years. You had to take that math, whether you liked it or not. Science. And so it's the same in college, but now, you know, colleges are getting more into peace education slowly, but uh, high schools are very hard to crack. I'm able to crack this high school I'm at now because I'm not paid. I'm a volunteer, so I can't be hired. I've not been, I've not been fired. I, I, yeah. I've not been fired. I can't be hired. So, uh, so I give no homework. I give no tests and no grades, and I think those are all forms of academic violence <laughs> i think that's a good approach when when i get to, uh, the chance to go and talk with high school students or college students uh i find it much more valuable than when i go and talk to uh, uh older adults in in peace centers and yes. peace groups because of course i'm talking to people who who don't already agree with me, but also don't already disagree with me, and and right. I and I'm just floored by how little they know about anything. Yeah. I mean, how much yeah. do these students know about international affairs when you get them, and then yeah. what do you try to have them know by the time they leave? Well, well, you can spend a whole semester on Gandhi alone, a whole semester on Tolstoy alone, a whole semester on civil disobedience. Yeah. This there's so many types of violence. There's domestic, uh, sexual, homophobic, racial, prison violence, corporate violence, media violence, political violence. You can spend the whole semester on any one of those topics. Yeah. And uh, the first class of every semester, I pull out a $100 bill, and I'll give this to anybody who can answer, identify these six people. I start out with Robert E. Lee, all hands go up. Ulysses S. Grant, ah, yes, Civil War General. Napoleon, ah, yes, we know him. So it's three for three. They're all looking at that $100 bill. So then I say, who is, who is Jeanette Rankin? No one ever knows Jeanette. Who is, who is Emily Balch? No one knows her. Who's Jody Williams? Uh, the last two were both Nobel Peace Prize winners. Jeanette Rankin, first member of Congress, who was a woman. I've done that quiz over, I'd say, over a thousand times. It's always safe money, David. <laughs> <laughs> and if they would read your book before the first day of class, they'd pick up the hundred dollars, right? It's so yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. and 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 uh, I. I, I <laughs> At the end of this message, so let's do that quiz again, okay? <laughs> yeah, I would hope that somebody would get it at the, you know, the second time around. The, the, my favorite, my favorite incident in your book, maybe I'm weird on this, uh, is when you were, uh, I think, a guest teacher somewhere else, and you asked the students to go out in the rain and count red and green cars in the parking lot. Can you, can you explain the purpose of that? Oh, you're nice to remember that, David. No, no, that. You don't remember. So they all, that, 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 this is a very silly little exercise we're doing now. I want you to go outside and count the cars, red cars and green cars, for 15 yeah. minutes, come back in. I'm going to have two questions for you. So they dutifully jump up, even if it's raining out, they'll go out. And I can, they come back in, and oh, I got 15 red, five blues, and then. Uh, <laughs> right. 
I said, didn't anybody think that was kind of stupid uh, to be doing that? And when, oh, no, yeah, we did think it was dumb. Okay, second question, why'd you do it then? Why don't you tell me, I'm not going to do something that's so stupid. Stand up to power <laughs> is what the lesson is about. I said, you're all sheep. Sheep wouldn't have even done that in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and do you ju- do you just make them mad, or do they get the do they learn the point, and do they start questioning obedience? Oh, they get the point. You know, I love that little phrase. Uh, instead of asking questions, start to question the answers, because the answers you're getting from power are mostly lies, which your beautiful book is all about, and you're being lied to endlessly. Uh, so start to question the answers you get from power, from Congress, from the corporations, often from your own parents. Yeah. And and it takes a while to get them to break free and do it. Do, do you think that, do you think, I mean, the answer has got to be both and all of the above, but do you think that what we need more is... Uh, is better information and facts and debunking the lies, uh, or uh, early childhood education and people with a different emotional in, in relationship with the world. Uh, what? Because there are people who who seem extremely resistant to the facts. Well, most of your public schools are run by governments. Uh, so uh, you have private schools where you can be a little bit more flexible, but those are high cost. Uh, so we're kind of caught in the middle on that. Well, the government schools, they uh, they tell you what the requirements are. Yeah. And 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 the private schools are more flexible. They have more they have more electives. They have more community service programs. But it costs fifty thousand, sixty thousand to go to Sidwell. You know, schools like that. But they're aimed at the same standardized tests and the same college admission admissions offices oh, yeah. in the end, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, the high school I teach at, it, it's in it, it, it's in a very liberal part of the country and. A lot of wealthy family, a lot of mansions. The kids come from men. They all have nannies. Many have nannies. And, and and so they realize that they are children of privilege. And and so I tell them, uh, uh, they know that they live in a ghetto, in the ghetto of wealth. And so many uh, 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 develop a good social conscience. Uh, uh, yeah. I always tell them that, uh, that if you are, if you are, an American citizen, you won the birth lottery. Uh, the odds of being born an American are 25 to 1. If you had a, a 100 people in the room, only four would be American. So you did well on the birth lottery. What are you going to do with your good luck? And so I try to push them to get in, to go to college and, and, and take courses that you can end up helping people in some way. Don't don't you think an even higher win in the lottery uh, if you had your choice uh, as a as an about to be born uh, infant might be a, a, another wealthy democratic country perhaps in Europe that doesn't put all of its money into war and has a higher life expectancy and higher uh, lower infant mortality and and longer lifespan and investment in retirement and and universal health care and and all the things you can have if you aren't putting everything into war? I mean, isn't it possible this isn't the greatest nation on earth? 
Right. No, you're exactly right. Uh, 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 people born in 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 in, in, in Ireland, uh, Sweden, or Denmark. Uh, 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 you're right. We are a warlike a warlike government, and keep invading endlessly. And which is what your book is all about. Uh, there's another great book, I'm sure you know it, by Norman Solomon, called War Made Easy. Indeed, yeah, and a film, too. Yeah, that's, yeah I played that film, and, and uh, I just got finished. I'm, I'm sure you know the other film, David, called Body of War. Yeah, sure. Phil, Have you seen that one? This is Phil Donahue's, right? That's right, that's right, yeah. Uh, we, we just showed that film, and we all wrote thank you letters to Phil Donahue to uh, thank him for that wonderful film. Yeah, well, I knew the, the slightly the young man it's about, and, and people who became his family and friends, and uh, it's a it's a tragic story that has to be multiplied literally yeah. by the millions to Did understand. Did you meet him at all? Did you ever meet Thomas Young? Uh, yes, just uh, I didn't know him well, but I. I oh, is that right? I, I know yeah, that's people yeah. who did know him well, and yeah, uh, yeah, indeed, yeah, some story. We've we've got just about three minutes left. I'm I'm now directing this organization called World Beyond War, and I would love any advice you would have on where where we should focus, what we should try to educate people to understand. Uh, we're we're putting up billboards around uh, the world with messages like three percent of U.S. military spending could end starvation on Earth" and things right, like yeah. that. What what messages do you think we we should put in a billboard or or in a book uh, to yeah, to reach yeah. people? I I I'm just sticking with peace education. I mean, it, it, uh, the buildings are already already there. The schools are there, and the audience is there. And now, how to crack those places? It's hard to do. Uh, but but there are a lot. Like look at the Montessori schools. They all started out in you know in, in some in, in some little Italian neighborhood, a very poor neighborhood in Rome, by Maria Montessori. Yeah. Plus, you have the Waldorf schools. There are plenty of good schools out there, but but like this is now a school right there in, in Charlottesville, Saint Anne's, Belfield. I think there's a Quaker school in Charlottesville. Sure, there is. Yes, uh, a, a tandem friends school. That's right. Uh -huh. Yeah, uh, I I spoke then also at Saint Anne's plus UVA. But I think the school. That's where I'm putting my chips. You know, my nickels and dimes on the schools. Yeah. Well, we have produced a book uh, called A Global Security System, An Alternative to War. You know, what should the world look like without war that right. Barbara Ween is using at American University. Um, but it's, you know, it's hard to get to get books op opposing war into schools. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm... I'm an anarchist also, so you know I'm an anarchist pacifist. So I think a lot of schools have me there for diversity. Oh, we have an anarchist. I'm a fact, aren't we liberal? <laughs> they can check off eight boxes when they just have you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we, we have been speaking with Coleman McCarthy. He's a former Washington Post columnist from 1969 to 1997. He is a leading peace educator in numerous schools, and you should have him come speak at one near you and get his book, I'd Rather Teach Peace. Coleman McCarthy, uh, keep up the great work. We'll put up links to everything about you at talknationradio.org. Thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. 
I thank you, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.